So if you have your bulletin, the text is printed there for you. If you have a physical Bible, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter. Uh, So we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 24 this morning. And as a reminder, uh, anytime we look at the Psalms or any book of the Bible, it's good to know the context. So I'm going to say this over and over again, but it's good for us to remember that the Psalter is the hymn book of the Old Testament, which is often sung by the congregation. There's many authors that span across the, um, the Psalter. This morning we're looking at another Psalm of David. Remember in the past I've mentioned that there's different types of psalms, and there's quite a bit of debate on this psalm specifically. Some scholars think that this is a generic hymn, just celebrating God's kingship. Okay, we're going to see the big tone of, of kingship throughout uh, the, the psalm this morning. But my conclusion, on, in line with many other scholars, is that this is an entrance liturgy. So it is an, a liturgy used uh, when, the, when the Ark of the Covenant was entering back into the sanctuary and into the temple. So it's very likely that this was a liturgy that was designed to accompany the procession of the Ark of the Covenant after battle. Okay, so one uh, of the most foreknown scholars of our time, Craigie, says this, the original liturgical use of this passage is that the return of the Ark from, the ark from war... In battle, the ark symbolized God's presence. In victory, the return of the ark symbolized the victorious return of the warrior God to his people. So this uh, was a, a liturgy of God entering into the presence of his people. So from this for, time forward, we see scholars uh, mention that this liturgy was actually used on the first day of every week in the temple from here forward. Okay, so we're going to proceed with this context in, the, in mind that this is an entrance liturgy and it is uh, the Lord God entering into our presence. Let's go ahead and open up the text this morning. It's Psalm chapter 24. We will be looking at all for, uh, 10 verses. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we get to Spend time in your word, understanding not only you better, but also ourselves. And Father, we pray uh, that that would be true this morning, that as we look at Psalm 24, that your spirit would be here moving in your people, Lord, that we would be um, turned, our affection would be turned more and more towards you and less and less towards ourselves and the things of the world. And Father, we pray uh, for this time now. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The beginning of the summer, uh, my wife uh, is a fa- on faculty at NMSU, so she has a whole summer off. Uh, she's a nine-month faculty, so over the summer, we're trying to figure out things to do uh, for our children, the three children that are home. So we got a membership to Urban Air. 
Uh, who knows what urban air is? Give me a raise of hands. You know, okay, a lot of you do not know, so I'm going to explain what this is. It's like a trampoline park for, for littler children. There's tons of things to do. You walk in the door, it's like dark lights, black lights, all these like strobing lights everywhere, and it just, it's like a kid's like playground. Like, it, like it's amazing, right? There's obstacle courses, there's a playground, there's a zip line, there's trampolines everywhere. It's an amazing place, okay? So over the summer, we got a membership uh, to Urban Air. So we pay a certain price every month, and we get to do certain things in, in the park. Okay, so the first time I took the girls, we went in, and they went from place to place to place, and they were really excited about doing all these things, and they realized they couldn't do certain things. There was, our membership was limited to a certain amount of things in the park. So they were doing all these fun things, but they realized they couldn't do laser tag, and they couldn't do bumper cars, okay? So and they were asking me, why can't I do this, Daddy? Why, why can't I go do that? Or why can't I go do that? And, you know, I, I, I want to say, like, look around. <laughs> like, you've done a lot of really awesome things. But, Amy, I explained to them, right? I'm getting down at the seven- and six-year-old level, and I explained to them that we don't have uh, permission to go. We haven't paid for all these certain different things. And I wanted to use Chuck's language, right, and say that we don't have the right currency to get into these different areas of the park, and we've all been in this type of situation, right? That there are certain areas in life that we're just not given access to. That I can't walk into the governor's office uninvited because I don't have the status. I can't walk into a party that I wasn't invited to because I don't have the relational status with the person. At the same time, all of us cannot walk into the Lord's presence on our own merit. We don't have the right. We don't have access. We don't have the moral capital to walk into his presence on our own. That I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we try to approach a perfect and sinless God, and it's not, we're not capable to do that. That none of us are worthy to enter into the presence of God. And the Bible teaches us that all have fallen short of the glory of God, Right? One thing I didn't tell you is that after the first month of Urban Air, the second month, I upgraded the membership. I didn't tell the girls, so we walked in, and I said, do whatever you want. And they're like, whatever we want? Whatever we want. And they were so excited, right? And this is a silly illustration, right? But isn't this what God has done for us? That the theme today is that God has made a way for his people to dwell with him, that he has given us unveiled access to himself through his son, Jesus. So the theme is in your uh, Bible, uh, the bulletin, so is an outline. So the three things we're going to be looking at today, verses 1 through 2, we're going to be looking at uh, the Lord's earth. Verses 3 through 6, we're going to be looking at the Lord's presence. Then lastly, we will look at verses 7 through 10, the Lord's entrance. So let's go ahead and start from the top. The Lord's earth, verse 1, says this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. So from the beginning, we see that David is speaking of, of the earth as belonging to one person, God, right? And we know, we think about the biblical theology as a whole, we know that he owns the earth because he is the creator. So as we proceed in the text, we're going to see that this psalm, it focuses on God's entrance into the earth, but... I think he starts here, that David starts here, because it's emphasizing that when, when God enters into earth, he's not entering into a foreign territory. He's not a, a hostile invader conquering a land which previously belonged to another. No, he's entering into the creation which he himself 
created. And when David in the text speaks of the earth in the first half, he, it speaks of the ecology that contains life, the non-human and plant life that fills the earth. Secondly, when he says the world and those who dwell in it, he's speaking of us, of humanity, the, the humans that bear his own image. So when he starts from the beginning, he's saying all of creation, the ecology and humanity all belong to God. He goes on in verse 2 to explain this further. He says this, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So, you know, David and many of the other uh, Bible authors will do this where they're using the language of the time and showing them how this language is wrong because this is true. So there's a chance that David is speaking in reference to Canaanite cosmology and how the earth was created in the Canaanite cosmology. And they debated the creation of the earth as a Canaanite god who wrestled against the chaos of the waters and out came the earth. David uses a similar language of it being upon the rivers that we see in the Bible that overlaps with Canaanite mythology. So he's using the words of the culture and saying, the words are kind of right, but in the wrong context. So let me show you where it is. In Genesis 1, 1 through 2, God, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see that God's rule in the beginning of creation made this world habitable. That God subdued the chaos of creation and made it a place that we could live. One theologian says this, The Lord's act of creation was to transform a non-place that was inhospitable to life into a place that is hospitable to life for you and me. So now, creation is, is secure from chaos. It is God that not only created the world and all things that are in it, but he is the same one that sustains the world and all things that are in it. So we see from the beginning, David is emphasizing when God comes into creation, it's his. Let's move on. Uh, point two is the Lord's presence. That's the shortest one. They're not all going to be that short. I'll warn you there, okay? Second point is the Lord's presence, verses uh, three through Six, let's start with uh, verse three. David asks this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? So we see David moves from this cosmic view of creation into the local life of his own people of Israel. And he's asking the question, if this God created all things, who can enter his presence? One theologian asked this question, he said this, who may process from the profane space of the world into the holy space of God's temple. So both in this text, both the hill of the Lord and his holy place, they're referring to God's own presence, which was located in the sanctuary and then the temple later on in this time. It's God's very presence. So who can enter into God's presence? Well, David answers it for us. In verse 4, he goes on, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's interesting about this passage that when he mentions who can come into God's presence, he's not speaking of a ritual act. Or are they ritually clean? If you remember, the Old Testament people of God needed to do certain things to become clean, to go into the presence of God. So we would be expecting to say, oh, he needs to have killed this type of animal and waited these certain amount of days. Okay? But no, he, that, that's not what he does here. The, the implications 
are actually ethical. It's a moral uh, requirement that the Old Testament people of God, they were called to God to to himself to be a blessing to the nations, to show the people of God, to show the people outside of the people of God who God is by their very lives. So David explains the characteristic here in verse 4 of a person who is following Yahweh, or to use biblical language, someone that is circumcised of the heart, who is already, has, already has faith and is living it out. This is explaining the lifestyle of someone who has been changed by God himself. When he speaks of clean hands and a pure heart, he's speaking of moral integrity, both in action and in thought. Okay? Both those ideas, both inside and outside. Now, he's not saying perfection here. He's saying someone that has been saved by God himself. His hands are clean and his actions and his heart are pure in thought. He goes on and says, this person is a person who does not lift up his soul to what is false. This verse implies an attitude of adoration and worship. The potential worshiper must not have been bound to falsity, to vanity, and have been a worshiper of something else. The person must be worshiping Yahweh. He goes on, he does not swear deceitfully. That's referring to saying, I'm going to have allegiance to God. I swear that I'm going to have allegiance to Yahweh, but worshiping something else. So this is a similar list that we get in Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is very similar if you want to go read this afterwards, where you actually get a much more exhaustive list of who can enter into the presence of the Lord. But I don't think the point is there. The point remains is that the one who belongs in the presence of God is the one who belongs to God. The works are just the fruit of the righteousness that is given by God himself, right? So it puts these works of a clean hands and a pure heart in a different light for us, right? That we're called to live in a certain way as God's people, not only for our, uh, rights, not for our right standing, but really to show the world who God is. It's not to earn favor, but to be a witness to God who saved you. So the moral commandments of the Bible have never been and never will be the way of salvation. Remember, our theme for today is that God has made a way for his people to dwell with him. And it's never been for us to get our act better, right? To act in a better way. It is God who did the work to bring about the relationship with his people. He goes on in verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So what is this? What is the result of a life lived for the Lord? He says that you will receive blessings from the Lord. You will receive righteousness. Reformed people that hold to a a certain view of, of, of salvation, this text and the order that it's in is hard for us, right? Because it sounds like to us that you live this way, do these certain things, have a clean hands and a pure heart, and you will get blessing. You will be righteous, right? James Boyce is a very uh, prominent, where he was when he was alive, a very prominent Reformed theologian. He says that it's helpful to read verses 5 and 4 in reverse order. So we'd ask the question, who can come into the Lord's presence? Verse 5 tells us, those who have been blessed and been given righteousness from God. And then verse 4, those who then show their faith to be true 
by their works. It's helpful for us to read the text that way, right? It reminds us that we're only able to enter into God's presence because of what he has done. But we could never have entered into the presence of God on our own merit. But now that he has done this on our behalf, that he has saved us, what is the result? That we have been blessed, we have been given righteousness. So we have to go further. What is the end of that? What what is the result? To save you and me, to be called to God. Yes, but that's not the end. Your salvation is not merely for you, but for the blessing of other people. That was the call of the people of God in the Old Testament, and it's the call of the people of God in the New Testament. That the righteousness you have been given should be an instrument of blessing for other people. Your life should be marked by clean hands and a pure heart. Why? To earn favor with God? No. You couldn't be clean enough. You couldn't have a pure enough heart. You've already been given all the righteousness you could could ever have through Jesus. But your life should be marked by clean hands and a pure heart because they reflect the very character of the God who saved you. They reflect Yahweh. So we live by the Bible to show others the very character of God. Our life should be an instrument of blessing for other people. In G.K. Johnson's book, uh, Why Christians Sin, he says this, Christ met unbelievers where they are. He realized what many Christians today still don't seem to understand. Cultivators have to get out in the field to work. According to one count, I want you to hear this, the Gospels recorded 132 contacts Jesus had with other people in his ministry. Six were in the temple, four were in the synagogues, and 122 were with people out in the mainstream of life. So what does that tell us about how to reach the world through the power of the Holy Spirit? That God has called His people into relationship with Him, into His presence. So what does it look like for us to be a vehicle of God's grace in the mainstream of life with those 122 contacts that Jesus had in that same sphere? What does it look like for you and me to be an agent for the power of the gospel in our day-to-day life? I think we can kind of go in two directions, right? We can first start corporately as the people of God, church, together when people i think we should start with this when people come into this place here when they are a new person into town or maybe they haven't been to church in a while and they come here that we should be a welcoming and loving place because god has welcomed us into his own family first right that that people should walk away from this place after coming here the first or second time and saying man those people i don't know about the pastor but all the other people were really really kind to me Right? Like they should walk away saying, man, they really loved me well. And at the same time, not requiring people to change or to clean up their lives to be welcome. Right? That's not what we see Jesus doing. Also, kind of at a corporate uh, level, we could look for ways to serve our community. All the statistics these days are showing that. evangelism has moved from like this idea of door-to-door or inviting people into the church to serving the community and having relationships with people. 
That's what the studies are showing, that the evangelism has changed because people are changing. So how can we serve out in the community? How can we show the love of Jesus to our community by serving them? At the same time, how can we have relationships with people outside of this building for the furthering of the gospel? That we need to be thinking about the bettering of El Paso for the gospel's sake. Jeremiah 29, when the people of God were in exile, thinking they were going to go back, to the promised land, but, but Jeremiah got a message that was much different. In 29, he tells the people this, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare as you find your welfare. So he's saying, you are not in your own land. You could say, First Peter, we talked about this last year, right? That we are exiles here in Christ, but we should be seeking the welfare of our community. That's kind of corporate level, okay? We can think about personal. I would encourage you to get to know uh, your coworkers, your neighbors, people that you're consistently running into, and befriend them. Befriend these people because Christ has befriended us first. Remember I mentioned the studies show that the way of evangelism is through service and relationship, right? These are really the long game of, rela- of evangelism. Like this stuff, it, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of dedication to serve the community, to know people, to get into people's lives. So I would encourage you to sit with people for a long time. Not expecting that change is going to happen quickly. If you think about your own life, you know that change has not happened quickly. Ask questions. Just be an an open ear. Don't be offended quickly. Francis Schaeffer said this, If I had 60 minutes with a non-believer, I would listen and ask questions for 55 of them. And I would speak for five. Let us be people who love other people sitting with them, praying for their salvation. We hold to this idea that God saves, right? It is, it is him alone who saves. So let us befriend other people, being agents of grace to them, but at the same time praying that God will save them. Let us be ambassadors for Jesus in every sphere of our lives. I think this is what David was getting at. These people that are showing their faith by their works, loving the community, that is who belongs in the presence of the Lord. He's encouraging them to be a blessing to their community. Okay, let's go on. Last point. This will be the quickest one. Verses 7 through 10, we're going to look at the Lord's entrance. Verse 7 says this, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. This may sound familiar. We did this as our call to worship this morning on purpose. Verse 8 says, Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Verse 10, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So if you look at the second point of the second stanza, it was all about um, who can enter into the presence of God? Who can go into God's presence? Well, we see here in in the third stanza, It's actually God who comes into our presence. It's the reverse, right? The text tells us that it's only those with clean hands and a pure heart that could enter. If you and me look at our own lives, we think about this week. If we had to go in on our own merit, 
Are we free from pride, hate, lust, disdain, greed? Free from impatience, selfishness, lying, self-centeredness? We could never have entered into God's presence on our own. You and I both know that we have no place in God's presence on our own standing. The Lord's response to that circumstance is here in the third stanza. Knowing that we could never enter His presence on our own, He enters into the presence of His people. He descends. He comes down. He comes into the presence of the sin-stained creation in which He created perfectly. In David's time, this was manifested. God's presence was manifested in God's dwelling in the sanctuary, then later the temple when it was established. Psalm 24 is a responsive liturgy of the Lord's entering into the presence of the people. The ark would have gone with the people into battle, ensuring their victory over their enemies. And the Lord's power brought the victory over the enemies. And the psalm was the entrance liturgy. You can think about it in your mind. This coming into the temple, and there's, there's, the liturgist is saying, Who is this king of glory? And the people are responding after a victory in war. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The liturgist again, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Yahweh was the victorious king for his people. Though they were weak and frail, often outnumbered on the battlefield, they would win the victory because of God's presence with them. Now, some scholars, remember I mentioned that there's debate on the type of psalm this is. Some scholars would actually say that this is a messianic psalm, speaking of uh, the, the, the Messiah to come. I don't know if I would go that far. I, I, I went a different direction because I believe it is, but I think there is some merit in it. Because this psalm was used the first day of the week in the liturgy in the temple. So this would have been Each Sunday, the words that are coming out of the priest's mouth. One theologian says this, putting the facts together, we can assume that these were the very words being recited in the temple by the priest the very time the Lord Jesus mounted a donkey and ascended the rocky approach to Jerusalem. So inside the temple, the words being said were, Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And the people outside of the walls of the temple in Jerusalem were saying from Matthew 21.9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now these priests would not have known that they were ushering in the king of kings. On the reverse, they are actually the ones that sent him to the cross. We know that, right? But you and I, as New Testament believers, can see that Jesus is the king who would have fulfilled the messianic prophecies that are layered throughout the Old Testament. That while we could never have entered God's presence on our own, God entered our presence. First, we see the veiled presence in the Old Testament, in the temple. God's presence was with the people. Later, we get the unveiled presence of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we can say of Psalm 24... Jesus, He is the King of glory. Jesus, He is strong and mighty. When we had no way of entering God's presence due to our rebellion, He entered into our presence, taking on God's own wrath on our behalf. So we can see the King of glory 
We can see him and trust him. If you're like me, I walk away from a text like this, and I, I believe what I say, even after studying it for a whole week, but there's still something in the back of my mind that says, I still can't enter the presence of the Lord. I, I, my hands are dirty. My heart is dirty. I would encourage you to hear these words from Spurgeon that were very encouraging to me. It is possible that you are saying, this is what he said, I shall never enter the heaven of God, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Look then to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust him. Follow in his footsteps and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. But how can I get the character described, says you? The Spirit of God will give you that. He will create in you a new heart and a right spirit. Faith in Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit. So let us trust in Jesus from Psalm 24. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. The theme today was that God makes a way for his people to dwell with him. And that way is Jesus himself and God's own son. Let us pray. Father, we are humbled to see and to know that we never could have even been saying these words in a prayer if it weren't for you and your work. That our lives are, were and still are full of sin. And it is only through your own grace in which we have a relationship with you. Father, you have called us out to be your people, that you have given your own son up, that we may live with you. And Father, we pray as we go before you at this table, Father, that we are reminded of that, reminded of who you are as our Savior at the same time, who you are as the one who sustains us and nourishes us, and who you are as the one who will come back again and make all things new. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.